Well, good morning. Good morning. Why don't we uh, get started because we've got a lot to cover and it's very possible that this is going to take us two weeks to cover this and that's okay. So be it. Yeah, well, it's, it's very possible. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come together and to study your word and thank you for this class and for Philip's class, for people who faithfully come to do so. This morning, as we take a look at the history, we're not going to specifically be studying your word, but we're going to see how your word has worked in the hearts of people over the years and give us a better understanding of why we have so many different branches and divisions of Christianity. Uh, through it all, may we just keep our eyes on you because we're not saved by our Lutheranism or our Methodism or our Presbyterianism or whatever. We're saved by your grace and through your blood. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, the idea of a class on how we got all our different denominations is, and I just kind of hinted at it, it really, this technically is not a Bible study, and we have to admit that, but it's going to have a lot of biblical concepts because it explains why things have happened the way they have. I handed out a, a chart, and the chart kind of is going to be the sort of the outline of the discussion, and it, it shows you visually. I'm very much a visual learner, and that could be because of all the years of designing marching band drills and shapes, you know, but um, in any case, I need some kind of graphic to kind of help guide me through the thinking. I found this one, you see in the corner there, it says Lagos, and Lagos is a Bible software that is very expensive, but it has many free elements to it. And you can go right on their website and see all of these things. This is from one of its free pages. Uh, so there's a lot of good material there. But what I want to do is to talk about how we got all the different divisions of Christianity. And before we can really talk about that, we have to go way back to in the Old Testament. Because at that time, what you had was essentially you had the Jews, who God's chosen people, largely the Hebrew people, and everyone else. And the everyone else's were Gentile peoples, but until all the conversions started, they were pagan. And by pagan, let's use for example, think of um, the Greek culture, which ruled for so many years. And they had all the Greek gods uh, and Many of us, when we grew up, we learned the Greek mythologies and the stories of Zeus. Not my neighbor's dog across the street, Zeus. That's a different <laughs> Zeus. By the way, uh, Lori, if you know Lori, Zeus, you know, is really struggling with his health lately. And he's so, I mean, pray for Lori because he's just been a good old boy and um, things just are not going well for him right now. He's a nice dog. He has that deep bass bark. Terry and I call him the base woofer. <laughs> yes, and quite a contrast to our very, very, very treble barker, Pepper. They could make quite some music. Yeah, they could, and they do. Um, but that pagan culture of so many of the Gentiles, because all around there, all around the Middle East, you know, you have Israel, and then... To the north, you have all of the Greek influences, 
and then later the Roman influences when they take over, and they had similar mythologies. Um, but then to the south in Egypt, also a pagan culture, and all the Egyptian gods, uh, lowercase g, the terminology I'll use. So those are all factors here. But when it comes to Judaism of the Old Testament, remember the key difference between the Jews and the Christians is that the Christians are those who accepted that Jesus is the Messiah who was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And people who identify as Jews today, largely speaking, say, no, he wasn't. We're still waiting for our Messiah. Christianity grew out of Judaism. In many ways, Christianity is Judaism fulfilled because Christ fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. The requirements of the law, Christ fulfilled on our behalf. That's an important thing to remember. Now, let me get back here to my notes. Let's see. Now, I don't know if that's still running or if it stops. Nope, it's running, so this is good. Let's kind of find my way here. There we are. But you have the Jews... And then Jesus comes along, and so then you have Judaism split. You have what today we would call Messianic Jews. And there are Jews who still follow a lot of the traditional Jewish teachings, right down to the, you know, the, the wear, the clothing, the lifestyle. But Jesus is their Messiah. Jesus is their Savior. They probably are ethnically Jews. But there are also movements within Christianity that have a heavy emphasis on Old Testament teaching. It's often called Torah-observant Christianity. And one of the movements today is called the Hebrew Roots. Another movement is um, called the First Fruits of Zion. And they tend to study the Old Testament, in particular the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, uh, they, because they're loaded with references to the coming Messiah. And inasmuch as that their faith is in Christ, they are Christian believers but they are looking at it through a different lens than what we might typically do. But that being said, the first big change that happened in Christianity was in the first few centuries, the followers of Christ were persecuted, they were ostracized, and they had to meet in secret. And then something happened in the year 312 AD. Who knows what that was? Hmm? Was it the Constantine? Constantine, emperor of Rome, and he at least allegedly converted to Christianity. Some people would make the argument of, well, he couldn't beat the Christians, so he joined them. Um, I don't know. I wasn't there. Weren't his sons considered popes, like Pepin and some of those others? Um, I don't know. The Catholics claim Peter as the first pope. All of those things can be debated. But the point is, is that at that point, the persecution of the followers of Jesus started to tone down substantially. And the early church was called the Roman Catholic Church. And Catholic, referring to both Christian as well as universal church, the body of true believers. And during that early time, that's where you established a pope, because somebody had to, there had to be some authority to handle disputes and to determine what was what. 
And then as we talked about during the Bible translations class, they also needed the word in a language that people spoke, and Rome wanted it in their language, which was Latin. So you had translations happening to put the Old Testament and the New Testament in Latin. That was the version called the Latin Vulgate, which the Catholic Church used almost exclusively until relatively recently. Now, there were variations of that. There was what, called, what was called Coptic Christianity. That was within Egypt. Uh, there was a movement. They were essentially Catholic. And then there was another movement in what was called Asia. It's called Nestorian Christianity. But Asia at that time, in the first couple centuries, wasn't really the Asia that we think of today. Anybody know where it was? Yeah, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, to the, you know, to the north of Israel and to the north of Syria and that region, modern-day Turkey, a huge section of land was always called Asia Minor. And so there were these variants, but they still were essentially what we would call Roman Catholic Christianity. They, they took some very strong stances in the early days in the early Catholic Church, on things that we should be very grateful that they did, because there were two important doctrines of Christianity that were under mega attack. One was the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is fully three and yet fully one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct from one another and yet one God. Sometimes hard to completely grasp that. The Catholic Church took a very firm stance against those who were attacking that, and they took a very firm stance against the deity and the personhood, not against, for the deity and personhood of Christ, because that was attacked. It was attacked from two sides, the people who were called the Gnostics that questioned whether he was, um, whether he was really human, and the um, Arians who questioned whether he was really God. And both of them were wrong, because if he wasn't really God, then he couldn't possibly be raised again, and therefore you don't have a saving Christ. And if he wasn't really human, he couldn't die. And therefore he couldn't be raised again, and you don't have a saving Christ. So this was huge, and the Catholic Church deserves you know, our gratitude for taking those stances back then. Uh, that's where they came out with the creeds, particularly Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And if you read them, they are written very much to combat the attacks on those two doctrines. But... As the Catholic Church progressed, one of the problems is that the church and what's called the state were kind of intertwined. You had all those kings, and so you had the church and the state being wings of one another. That's one of the reasons why all the baptismal records for so many years, even until relatively recently, uh, were all kept by the church on behalf of the state. By state, I mean the government. And though they were official state churches, in Italy, you know, if you were born and raised in Italy, you were Roman Catholic. And later on in the Protestant Reformation, if you were born and raised in Scandinavia or in northern Germany, you were Lutheran. And if you were born and raised in England, you were Anglican. Now, over time, they had more freedom of religion, but the point was is that they were the state churches and they and the monarch were just opposite sides of the same coin. Granted, it's a little more nuanced than that, but essentially, that's what was happening. 
But there were problems that started happening in um, the 1000s. And at that point, you started to have geographical tension between what was called the East and the West. And by East and the West, I'm referring to Europe. Western Europe is the countries that many of us would trace our lineage to. But you had Eastern Europe. And by the way, Greece was considered on the East, and Rome and Italy was considered on the West. And then you had all those Eastern European countries, the Slavic nations, and today what are called the Baltic states. Uh, and of course, Russia. Most of Russia's population was on its west side there. Still today, I believe, large chunks of its population, 75% or more, are between Moscow and St. Petersburg and large cities that are right near the European borders. Countries with Stan in their name. Countries with Stan in their name, yes. All, all the Stans, all right? And, and so there was tension there between the east and the west and it comes to a head in the year 1054 with something called the Great Schism. Uh, perhaps the first church split, but this was on a massive scale. And what brought it to a head, I mean, there were a number of factors, including <laughs> debate about who's pope. Because there were, at one point, there were three different guys claiming to be the pope. The one in Rome, another one in Istanbul, Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, Turkey, and there was another one in France. And so they had to work that one out, and I think that their solution was neither one of them were named Pope. Um, Wasn't that part of the Holy Roman Empire? That was, that was. And by the way, the doctrine of the Pope being infallible was also a relatively recent doctrine um, in the last <coughs> 400 years or so. I'd have to look up exactly when it was, but that's a relatively recent doctrine. They came up with it because it was sort of like, it's sort of like our Supreme Court today, when, when as a nation we can't come to agreement on something and we must settle it, we can't just agree to disagree. It goes to the Supreme Court and they settle it and we have to do what Al Gore did in 2000. Do you remember his statement? about their decision, I profoundly disagree with it, but I will respect it. And he absolutely had to say that, because otherwise we were gonna rip ourselves apart. Um, and so the Pope was given that authority to be the final decider on things. Then they couldn't even agree on who was Pope. But what the, was the straw that broke the camel's back was something that they call it the Filicue Clause, F-I-L-O-Q-U-E. And the Filicue Clause was dealing with where, from whence, comes the Holy Spirit. Um, is the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father, or is it proceeding from the Father and the Son? And this was, you might say, gosh, that's a minor little discussion, but it was a big deal. And the, the East-West tensions and the desire for certain autonomy created the first split in Christianity creating what is called the Eastern Orthodox Church. Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Latvian Orthodox. In that famous Seinfeld episode where George goes to convert because of his girlfriend. I don't know if you remember that one. <laughs> but um, yes, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Essentially what you have is Eastern Catholicism and Western Catholicism. And so that goes on for... A few hundred years, 
And you're in what history calls the Dark Ages, in which we, there's not a lot of information that we have. And more and more, the language that the church used was not the language that the people spoke. And so they went to church and everything, church was basically done to them. They really didn't participate. They just kind of sat there and had it done. It even developed a Catholic doctrine that they still teach by the Latin phrase ex opere operato, which means by the work it has worked. And it refers to that the sacraments do their work as long as you don't fight them. Just sit there and let them do their job. And it was just an unusual time frame. A lot of them didn't read either. Many of them didn't read. But in 1450, a couple hundred years later, something begins to happen in history. It's the beginning of what we call the Renaissance. And in the Renaissance, it was a, a time of uh, tremendous movement, not only in the arts and in music, but also in literature. And with all that change, there was an interest within the church of wanting to look at the original languages again of Scripture. And this comes back to the, the Bible translation class a few weeks ago, that scholars within the Catholic Church wanted to look at the original languages. Uh, the problem is that the Catholic Church hierarchy said, why would you ever need to do that? We have the Latin version. That's God's word. And in so much as it was an accurate translation, yes, it was, but the question is whether it was exclusively God's word because nobody spoke Latin anymore. So that was that connection that I talked about where they were looking at original languages and a guy named Erasmus wanted to create a Greek New Testament because they didn't have a New Testament bound in one document. They had a Greek Old Testament that had been translated from Hebrew called the Septuagint. And any time that you see Jesus quoting from the Old Testament, if you go back and look at the verse in the Old Testament, what Jesus says in the New Testament is clearly the essence of it, but it's not exactly the same. Often it's because he quoted from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of it. And so they put it in the New Testament version because the New Testament was going to be in Greek. And Jesus would have spoken it in Greek at the time. But then along comes Martin Luther. And it's 1517, and this is where the Protestant Reformation starts to kick off. It had been percolating for a while. Increasingly, they looked at some of the things that the Roman Catholic Church was doing, and even people who were leaders within the church were having a problem with it. So what I'm going to talk about from this point on, for the most part, is Roman Catholicism and the Protestant movement. I've kind of said this is where the Eastern Orthodox came from, and we're going to sort of let them, let them be. Now, there's one other thing I should mention before we get into Luther and now the rest of the Protestant movement, and that's, let's go back into the Old Testament and something that Wednesday nights we've really been emphasizing with the teens, and that's that, you know, we know about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the line of the Jews comes from that, and eventually Jesus comes from that. But remember... Abraham had two sons, at least that are emphasized. Isaac, but who else did he have? Ishmael. Ishmael was with Hagar, one of, um, one of um, Sarai's um, handmaidens, basically. And Ishmael was the firstborn. Isaac was the secondborn. But everything goes to Isaac in terms of the lineage. And so Ishmael goes off and his descendants become what we know as the Arabic 
races and nations. And around the year 600, the uh, Muslim, the Islamic faith, comes along. And so, well, it isn't Christianity by any means. What is it that Christianity and Islam and Judaism have in common? There are three major world religions, but they have something in common. They believe they're monotheistic. They believe there's one God. They, the Muslims have a different understanding of who God is from the Christians and the Jews. But nonetheless, there is the common root there. So I'm just going to mention that um, because we're primarily focused on the divisions in Christianity, but just know where that comes from. And what we've tried to emphasize to the teens is that you can trace the roots of all of the problems in the Middle East way back to them, to Isaac and Ishmael. It's like a 3,500-year, you know, Hatfields and the McCoys. And you can calm it down for short periods of time with the peace processes, but it's never going to go away until Christ returns because there is no solution to it other than that. It's, um, it's just incredible how deep those roots run. So, it's the early 1500s, and we're in Germany, in uh, Wittenberg, Germany. And there's this Catholic monk named Martin Luther, and he's looking at the original languages, even though that wasn't really approved. Everything I can tell Luther was two things, quite a character and a deeply tortured soul. And as he's looking at the original scriptures, he knows that what he's been taught as a Catholic, not only as a monk and not only as a priest, but he was Dr. Martin Luther, doctorate of theology. So this is not just your ordinary neighborhood priest. I mean, this man was extraordinarily educated. And he looked at what he was taught, and basically the doctrines of the Catholic Church taught, if you do this and this and this and this, you will become righteous in the eyes of God. And I'm going to get to that in a bit because a lot of the differences were driven by what's the basis of our salvation. The Catholic view said, I want to be, I want to be fair to the Catholics on this. It's not that they don't believe in faith and they don't believe in the grace of God. They very much do. The question is whether or not faith and grace alone are the basis of our salvation or what role do works have, what role do the sacraments have, and what role do the traditions of the church have. What Luther, a Catholic, um, perhaps the Catholic's Catholic, said is that when I read the original scriptures, one of the things I don't see is all of these things that the Catholic church teaches. But what I do notice is that the Latin version says... Um, we do all these things and we become righteous. And the term was justificare, the Latin term meaning to become righteous. Luther was such a tortured soul that he was going to confession for practically everything. I mean, the, one of the jokes is that every time he passed gas, he had to go to confession to, just in case it was a sin. He was such a tortured soul. And they ate German food, too. Yeah, they ate all that German food. And, so... Um, Yes. Okay. Do you think that was God's purpose for Luther? Yes. Is, mm -hmm. Yeah, is that the Catholics got too mighty in what they thought was right? Absolutely. God Inside. used Martin Luther very powerfully. Yeah. Okay. Very powerfully. Oh, make sure I'm on the right. Yep. Here. 
So Luther looks at the original Greek, and the Greek word dikeahu meant you are declared righteous, not become righteous. This was a huge difference. Another huge difference was how is sin forgiven? The Latin said, do penance. The Greek said, repentance. Not at all the same thing. Doing penance in the Catholic Church is when you go to confession and the, you confess your sins and the priest says, yeah, you're right, you shouldn't have done that. Tell you what, I want you to do this and this and this, and then I will forgive you of your sins. Technically, the priest doesn't forgive, to be fair. The Holy Spirit forgives, but the, the, the priest is ordained to administer that, essentially. Okay? They never taught you the Holy Spirit forgives. Hmm. Right? No. I'm, I'm trying to be fair no, I to the Catholics. And you're doing a wonderful job, but I'm just making that comment. Okay. So Luther says, um, you know, we got a problem here. I don't see some of your teachings in Scripture. What I see is that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And I see the Catholic Church teaching a combination of faith and grace accompanied by grace-inspired works accompanied by receiving the sacraments. And so what you end up with here is the next big division, is that the Protestant Reformation, by its nature, Reformation means that they are, quote, reformed, and they have a higher view on God's sovereignty, on what God does, whereas the Catholic Church, whether unintentionally or not, had a higher view on what man does. And so the Catholic Church was very Arminian, it was very much based upon um, our cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Luther and his followers had a tendency to be much more based upon God's sovereign will. And though that tension still exists, and you've heard me teach about it and talk about it a lot. So Luther is doing the best he can to hang on and be a good Catholic, but then... You've heard the story about a guy named Johann Tetzel. They had something called indulgences. And the indulgences were dealing with a Catholic doctrine called purgatory, in which they would sell an indulgence because the Pope needed to raise money for the building that now is known as St. Peter's Basilica. So they would sell these indulgences, and the indulgences were used to get your dead parent or uncle or whatever out of purgatory sooner. You could buy 50 years worth of early release or 100 years worth of early release. And they would give you a piece of paper that documented it. Um, Tetzel even had a phrase for it. It was, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was the phrase. Now, he didn't say it in English, obviously, but that's what the phrase was. Luther looked at it, and he said, this is baloney. I don't see this in scripture anywhere. And so real quickly, the Catholic Church had to deal with Martin Luther. And there's a couple movies about his life. The most recent one, maybe 15 years ago, is very good. It's just titled Luther. And it has a scene in there where he's standing before this tribunal. They held it at the city of Worms spelled English W-O-R-M-S, and it was an event 
that was called the diet, but it looks in English like it says the diet of worms, but it was the diet of worms, and there they essentially, the Catholic hierarchy, through the monarchy, put Luther on trial. And they basically said, we got all these books here that you've written. These teach things that are contrary to Catholic doctrine. Will you recant? You know, will you recant these things? And he asked for a day to think about it and pray about it. And he came back and he said, well, some of the things I've written are accepted Catholic doctrine. I can't recant those. Some of them, I'll admit, are my own opinion. But at the same time, I have a biblical basis be behind them. And others are just simply what Scripture says, and that's not what the Catholic Church teaches. I can't recant them. I'm sorry. And then he made this famous statement. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And, well, they really slapped his hand hard. Basically, he survived. They, they could have put him to death. But he went into hiding for a while, and during the hiding is when he did a lot of writing, um, and these books were starting to become more and more available because of a technology invention just about 100 years earlier. Gutenberg, Gutenberg printing press. And at least in so much as people could read, they were able to read his writings. And it was beginning to be a crisis within the Catholic Church. And it just steamrolled over into the neighboring countries. In Switzerland, John Calvin... The teachings of Calvin are known as Calvinism, um, which similar to Luther, but not entirely the same. And we'll talk about the differences between those. And then it spilled over eventually into England, because as the, the break-off of the Catholic Church swept through Europe up in England, along comes King Henry VIII, and he isn't too thrilled about having to put up with the Pope telling him what he can and can't do especially as it related to divorce. A lot of heads laying around there. <laughs> <laughs> and so they broke off and became the Church of England, or the Anglican Church. So all of this stuff is going on. John Knox. And then up in Scotland, John Knox at the Church of Scotland, which in America became the Presbyterian Church when they came here. So we'll, we'll talk about why all of that is. But there's some other movements going on, too. And that is because of the following, that you have the Catholic Church that was very much based on our response to the Holy Spirit, which was a very Armenian view. And Lutheranism and Calvinism and up in um, the Netherlands, what's called the Dutch Reformed Movement. In Michigan, we know it well if you're from West Michigan at all. Grand Rapids and that whole area over there has a heavy Dutch Reform influence. We have our Dutch Rome. Okay. Yes, we have our, our, our Dutch seating section that Hank Vanderwerp told me about when I first came here. And they say, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. Yes. <laughs> Years ago, I, I interviewed for a position at Holland West Ottawa High School the summer that we came to Midland. And at that position... You had three offers that summer. I did. But I remember I joked that uh, if my last name was Hubersma or Vanderhuber, I would have had a better chance. <laughs> well, so what we have is you end up with um, you end up with this movement going on, 
trying to get this back to where it's supposed to be on my screen. There we go. And so you have counter-movements as well. The counter-reformation movement. The Catholic Church decides, what are we going to do? This guy Luther and now all these others, they're raising havoc around here. we got to deal with them. So they do what the church always did. They put together a special study group. And it took them several years to get their work done. But there was a council, and it's known as the Council of Trent. One of the things is that we knew about the Council of Trent in music school because so many of the things in music history have their roots from the Council of Trent because all the master composers in, from the 1400s up through really the early 1800s where the money was was either the monarchy or the church. And so all the masterworks, and particularly all the choral masterworks, were written for the church. And so people who have studied music know all about the Council of Trent. But theologically, the Council of Trent was the Catholic Church's way of trying to deal with this Protestant uprising. And among the things that they did is they determined that these other books that were historical books, the apocryphal books they're called, uh, they were going to be accepted as part of the canon of Scripture. Um, Protestants don't view them as being divinely inspired. The Catholics do, in part because they include passages that tend to teach support for, for things like purgatory, for baptism of the dead, or prayers for the dead, excuse me. Baptism of the dead is more of a Mormon thing. So these are all factors that are going on there. The Catholic Church kicks back. And in Holland, there's a kickback. The Dutch Reform Movement is firing up, and a man named Jacobus Arminius, better known as James Arminius, has the Arminian viewpoint, which is the opposite of the Calvinistic viewpoint. It has a higher role of man's free will, as opposed to the other Reform viewpoint has a higher role of God's sovereign will. So these are all factors, along with two other things. You have the basis of our salvation, or in theological terms, justification. In this sermon series, I've been talking about sanctification. That's after you've come to believe and you're saved by God's grace. That's the rest of your life is sanctification. But up to that point, to where you come to believe, that's the point of justification. And a lot of the debates here were about when and how are you justified. Um, I hope I'm not being unfair, but the Catholic Church essentially has you temporarily justified, and you're always in danger of losing it unless you continue to basically let the sacraments do their work on you and regularly go to confession and regularly attend Mass, even to the point of up to death, the administration of last rites, another one of the Sacraments, extreme unction, I believe is the term for it, okay? And so what the Roman Catholic faith has had a tendency to do is in their mind to move justification all the way to the point of death in which you are temporarily saved. And that's one reason why they believe that grace is infused by the taking of the sacraments. The Protestant view is grace is imputed once, up front, the moment you first believe, and it is permanent. That leads to doctrines that in Baptist speak, once saved, always saved, which can be a terribly misused doctrine. Uh, the number of people who I've heard say, 
I'm saved, I can do anything I want. And my response to that is, how dare you? You know, if you think that's what that means, that calls into serious question whether or not you're a saved believer. No, you're, you're saved, okay? No, you can't go have an affair. That's not what it means. But at the same time, Arminianism on steroids, somebody never has assurance. They're always afraid there's some unknown sin. Or the Catholics, they're afraid there's some unconfessed sin. But I've even heard the Reformed side of the equation have that. One of my seminary profs had a close friend who was a, a, an elder in the um, Puritan Reformed Church in Grand Rapids. You have the Protestant Reformed, Christian Reformed, and Puritan Reformed. Because even the, the, basically the Reformed churches in Grand Rapids area can't completely get along. And here, the person doing the, 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 um, the funeral said, essentially, we don't know whether or not our brother Joe was one of God's elect, so all we can do is just trust God for his place in eternity. And it was like, this man had God's hands all over him. How could you say, well, we still don't know whether or not he was really saved? That's what Calvinistic Reformed theology on steroids does. It just runs off the cliff. Just like Arminian theology, in which you never have assurance and you're always afraid that if you breathe wrong, you're going to lose your salvation, runs off the cliff. Um, what people have done to the basis of salvation is terrible over the years. And so the reaction of the different denominational movements has been reactions against that. But there was one other factor in all the development of different denominations. We've had the understanding of, of justification, and then we've had the matter of whether or not they rejected the authority of the Pope. Uh, what was the third one? I'll give you a hint. It has to do with the kings. Essentially nationalism. Okay, Lutheranism was heavily a German movement. Reformed Calvinistic was heavily Switzerland. Presbyterianism was heavily Scotland. Okay, Dutch Reformed, they give that away just right in their name. Okay, Even the Church of England was a Reformed movement. But they were the ones that stayed, the, they and the Lutherans stayed the closest <laughs> to the Catholic Church. Um, in the Church of England, initially, the two biggest differences were there was a much broader road to getting a marriage annulled so that the king could remarry, so he didn't have to cut the head off of his wife. <laughs> but on, on theological issues, <laughs> Stan's looking at Linda. <laughs> on theological issues, though, the king of England or the queen wasn't qualified to make those decisions, so they needed somebody who had the authority to make those spiritual decisions. And so they created kind of a localized sub-pope called the Archbishop of Canterbury. And if you remember watching William and Kate's wedding 10, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, magnificent music, um, or the coronation of King Charles, again, magnificent music, the person who officiated was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Different, different men over those years, but nonetheless. So 
that's the basis of those main branches in Europe, Lutheran and Reformed and the Church of England. But you notice there's another movement on here called the Anabaptists. That's an interesting story. It's something of a sad story, to be honest with you. What was happening is that you had people in, in Switzerland who were under the teaching of a third lesser-known figure. You have Luther and Calvin, but you have a third one named Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. And Z-W-I-N-G-L-I. Yep. C, C, Z is in zebra, W, Z. Ulrich, Ulrich Zwingli. And what was happening there is you end up with people who their children were baptized as infants because it was essentially required. It almost was like the birth records that the church was responsible for on behalf of the government. But there was a group of people that they were called the Anabaptists, that means rebaptizers. And they did not recognize the infant baptism because their feeling was that the Bible teaches that baptism is something that is done after a profession of faith, not before. Hence, they didn't view it as a sacrament. They viewed it as what we call an ordinance. And so what happened is that they wanted to rebaptize their children. And Zwingli was sympathetic to this, but the pressure of the monarchy and just of the state was such that eventually Zwingli just kind of turned his back on these people. He even went so far as to say that if they want to rebaptize their children, give their parents the third baptism. And the third baptism meant they took them out and they drowned them. Yep. Now, how much of that happened, I don't know, but that's an awful thing that happened. But, you know, in the name of Christ, some terrible injustices have been committed over the years. And that group of Anabaptists, its most direct descendants today are the Mennonites and the Amish here in America. You wonder, where did those groups come from? Well, think of just the way we view them today. They want to live separately. They pretty much uh, don't want to deal with modern conveniences. They see too many problems that it creates. And they were based heavily on the teachings of two key people. One of them named, um, and get the names correct here, Jacob Amman became the Amish, and another one, Jacob Menno, the Mennonites. Similar but different, and even here in America they have variations, but essentially what they have in common is they want to live separately, and they want to kind of live life more like what it would have been back in the 16, 17, 1800s. Uh, in so much as their trust is in Christ, they are fellow Christians, but they do have certain things about them that we might not agree with, okay? Uh, I do not, they are not cults. They are what is called sects. S -E sects. They are not cults. S-E-C-T-S. -E a sect is a subset of a broader Christian group. The challenge comes in when people who are, and here I go again, beating up on the Baptists. I can do that because I can get away with it. 
and that's the following, is that there, are, there is a small subgroup of Baptists, uh, typically those who identify by the label IFB, Independent Fundamental Baptist. And they would say that Baptists are not and never have been Protestants. They always were. They claim something called The Trail of Blood, which is a book written in 1931 that claims that they never broke away from the Catholic Church. But when I look at where the Baptists come from on this chart, and I agree with it, Baptists, at least in Europe and America, are very much a product of the Protestant Reformation. They just simply have a tendency to have some Amish elements in that they really emphasize separation from the rest of the world. They tend to, they'll live modernly, but at the same time they will choose to not be a part of many things that most of us would be comfortable with. Um, now a word about the, the Church of England, because if you can see here, many of what we know as American denominations are breakoffs of the Church of England, because when they came to America, now they were no longer under the thumb of the Crown of England, and that was a, a big reason for the early settlers in America, even the, the creation of the United States and its constitution. Freedom of religion. Freedom of religion was one of the big things. But many the history theologians refer to the Church of England. It is Protestant in the sense that they had an emphasis on God's sovereignty and they had a de-emphasis on the authority of the Pope, but they very much had um, many things that still looked and felt very Roman Catholic, and so often their Church of England is referred to as Anglo-Catholic. And their their version of church governance, of making decisions, is a combination of a hierarchy above the local church and people at the local level of the church. And that was a system that was called an Episcopal system. And so in America, it became known as the Episcopal Church. When the Scottish settlers came to America, the Church of Scotland, and its heavy emphasis on the use of what was called presbyters, to make decisions in combination of locally as well as a hierarchy above, that became the Presbyterian Church. But the Episcopal's not on here. It isn't on here, that's correct. It's Church of England. It's Church of England that's just transplanted to America. Oh, okay. okay? Yep. The Congregational Churches were, that's where the Puritans that broke away from the Church of England, they wanted all the decisions to be made at the local level. They also didn't want things to be high church. They wanted things to be very simple. If you go in some of those congregational churches out in New England, they're very simple inside. You don't see a lot of stained glass. You don't see the statues. You don't see the ornateness. You see a very simple thing. And in a lot of ways, the Baptists are a break off of the early Congregationalists here in America. The Methodists were a while later when John Wesley was trying to reform the Church of England. And he developed a system in which you didn't just go to church and have teaching in large groups. You also had teaching in small groups as well as teaching one-on-one. -on -one. would be the equivalent of today's discipleship, Sunday school, and large group worship. And because he used a specific method, they became known as the Methodists. And... Many Baptists have adopted most of those things. 
the traveling revival preachers of the 1800s, of the sawdust trail, they called them. They would put up big tents, and they'd put all this sawdust on the ground to try to soak up the mud. A lot of those were Methodists, and they used the altar call as a methodology and everything else. The Baptists and later on the Pentecostal movement adopted many of those methods. But that's where so many of those things came from. So that gets us up to this point. And what I'd like to do is next week talk about all the changes and divisions within America, including the subdivisions, because each of those groups have broken up into subgroups. Some are more conservative and some are more liberal. Even the Baptists have ultra-conservative divisions and relatively liberal divisions. So have I totally confused you? No. Okay. I just wish my brain would well, why don't we um, why don't we pray because I need to get ready for the service. Okay. Yeah. This, by the way, this whole discussion is one of the very first things that got me really excited about considering a call to ministry. It was a class that Midland E Free offered on Wednesday evenings, basically when the teens had their youth program, and for them on teen night that was 150 kids. So the parents got together and the pastor taught a class called, So What's the Difference? And it talked about all the history of the, between the denominations, why they were formed and how they were theologically alike and how they were different. And before that, I had the book from my class in college. On the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. A history and he kept class. asking me questions. And then this but don't you was... wonder what God really wanted? Well. It seems like a lot of human... It is. I think God works through a lot of our imperfections. Okay? And we'll, we'll talk more in depth about that next week, because I figured this would take a couple of weeks. Hopefully your head isn't spinning. Lots of comments and questions for next week. Yeah. Write your comments and questions down, and we'll, so we'll have some discussion next week. I'll, I'll be less of a talking head. All right. Let's, let's pray. Lord... Thank you for this time together. Thank you for those who could come here today. May this morning be pleasing to you as we complete this sermon series and as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Help us to keep our eyes on you, Lord. So often we get our eyes focused on our own preferences, and I'm not sure that that's always pleasing to you. Uh, we ask for your guidance and your blessing, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Maybe next week.